the subject for this evening's talk is spiritual ambition. Each evening between now and January the uh, 26th, there is an evening talk beginning about this time. And I would like to uh, say to you that the express uh, purpose and intention with regard to the evening talk is very singular. It is to enlighten human beings, nothing else. That is the primary and essential uh, purpose with regard to each and every one of these talks, the themes which belong to the talks, the uh, sharing with you, and certainly if there is uh, any failure to enlighten human beings, then the responsibility for that falls fairly and squarely on the speaker and his, my limitations. And certainly his no reflection on the truth of things which in a very blessed and uh, fortunate way for one and all isn't at all reliable on a human being, on an individual, on language, but nevertheless we're here to discover what it means day in and day out here to live as a free and emancipated human being and that is the best for all. When we give care to our reflections and so often we're rather slovenly I feel with our past, when we give care to our reflections on life we not only I feel need to look at ourselves from our own particular views and standpoints but also to acknowledge equally significantly the impact that our social environmental world has upon us. And I do feel it's rather necessary for us to be acutely and sensitively aware of the potency of conditioning, of the way our life is shaped, framed, and dare I say programmed in a particular way in which you and I have been told with incessant frequency how to live. What really matters and what really counts in terms of a worthwhile life. This message, which so often and so easily can be a form of uh, indoctrination, has said to us, one of the things which counts and matters most is a so-called good education. What is a good education? And I get concerned for people, for uh, people today in their uh, youth, in their teenage, in their twenties, and for anybody who actively entertains the idea of quote-unquote going back to school. What he or she may have to face as the growing pressures on individuals to go back to school, to qualify as some measure of some 
indication of what a successful life is. Has this pressure and sometimes this intolerable form of educating of us, of individuals, has that produced, generated, enlightened people? Has it contributed to a significantly compassionate heart? Has it enabled us to understand what living a wise life really is? And so I do feel it's quite necessary and important to put learning, the cerebral forms of learning, the intellectual learning, <coughs> which has a very valuable and useful place, but to put it in a perspective. <coughs> Some of us left school uh, earlier than the average, and certainly, if I may say, I am one of those. I uh, left school at uh, 15 and a half, and if I may say, my only regret about leaving school at the age of 15 and a half was that I didn't leave six months earlier. <laughs> and I found that I received, through spiritual life, through the practices and disciplines which you and I are engaged in during these days, a far more significant, <coughs> deeper kind of education about life, about the human experience in this phenomenal world. So sometimes we look, and I'm going to quote in a moment or two from a, a, an English newspaper, uh, if, my, if I may, I think it sheds a little light on this subject. But sometimes we look at our life and we say, where is this pressure upon me? The pressure to get a job, the pressure to study, the pressure from the educators, the society, from the un growing unemployment lists now more than 20 million in uh, the European community. The uh, pressure from parents, of course, a considerable number of whom will be thoroughly dissatisfied with what you're doing thoroughly dissatisfied and very suspicious about meditation and sitting on a retreat and really feel that you've lost it altogether <laughs> and may you do so and <laughs> this kind of pressure and the frequent mantra that um, many parents will send to those who uh, still correspond with them <laughs> the one line yardstick of which I received in the ten years that I spent in the East. It became my dear mother and father's favorite mantra, which was, what a, when are you coming home? <laughs> and others will be receiving such mail quite frequently. And sometimes we have very bold decisions to make in our life. And sometimes the power of the heart and the mind to say no. No, with a capital N-O, exclamation mark, because there is some sense, vague and unfelt maybe, and, and ambiguous and abstract as it may be, there may be some deep feeling inside, somewhere inside of us, which says there has to be more than what this society has offered. So sometimes, when we look, we can very easily in this, in terms of ambition, social ambition, status ambition, there is a thrust in a human being. And that thrust somehow seems to show itself in the movement towards something more. Something more than. 
And I feel what has happened in our uh, society, our, our culture, that in some rather sad and perhaps perverse way, this movement towards something more has taken a particular form. More may mean bigger salary, of course it does. More may mean um, better qualifications, having more letters uh, before and after one's name because one's just thoroughly dissatisfied with the number of letters already in one's name. <laughs> and more can be a particular role in life in which we feel that we are exerting uh, an increasing degree of influence. More power, in other words, more power influence over others or the environment. So there is this movement which a human being shares, which we in our culture and society, and perhaps a worldwide phenomena, has perhaps rather ruthlessly, I feel, politically, economically exploited. But does that mean that in that movement towards something more, more than, that that itself should be, as it were, starved to death? Is it a matter of cutting off absolutely and uh, unshakably the movement to something more? We're here to look at this, look at the movement of mind, the feelings, the thoughts, the perceptions that goes and moves towards something more, more than. <coughs> in this newspaper article in The Independent, it's independent uh, is a, regards itself as a serious uh, uh, newspaper. <coughs> Quite a compliment to regard it as a newspaper, but that's something else. And the writer here uh, is a man who some people in Britain will be familiar with. His man is named William Rees Mogg. And he is a colonist. And has been writing a column in the independent newspaper, he says at the beginning of this article, for the past six years. This is his closing article. And in this closing article, because he's now um, in the age of uh, retirement, he is reflecting a little bit, as you and I hopefully are prone to do in thoughtful ways, on the past, the present, and the future. And if I may, I'd like to... Um, quote a little bit at uh, length to try to communicate to you a little bit of what he's saying and I do think it genuinely bears a relevance to an enlightened, enlightened life. He says, and he begins with a quote from um, Isaac Newton, who is uh, whatever he is. <laughs> <laughs> you went to school so you know better than I. A quote, a thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. That was Isaac, views, Isaac Watts' view of God's relationship to time. As one gets older, one has a rather similar sensation of the brevity of time and the accelerating speed with which it passes. My own perception of time has ceased to be proportionate. It took as long to go from two to four years of age as from twenty to forty and appears to be taking as long to go from 60 to 70 as it did to go from 6 to 7. I think it's something that many of us know and experience this sense of time as the years go by seem exponentially to go faster. 
And then he mentions the fact that he's been writing this column for uh, six years. And he says, it's not been easy in these past six years to distinguish between the acceleration of time that comes from growing older and the acceleration of history itself. He then relates some of the major uh, global events of the last uh, few years. And he says, there are economic and political changes are exceptionally rapid and great. They take place in a world of equally rapid technological change. And then begins to relate to, relate to some of those. And he says, the Western system itself, that's um, for many of us, of course, where we have our base and home, the Western system itself is showing the strain. The shift of productive power from the northwest to the southeast has been accompanied by a depression and <coughs> goes on in, along those lines. And how there's the shift of industrial production. And then he says, how can mankind deal with this acceleration of change? It has already made the world's politicians look like so many pygmies. George Bush will prove to be only one of the first of the old leaders to be, to be repudiated. The Italian political leadership has already gone. There is no Western government which could expect to win an election. Modern politicians are trying to adapt to forces greater than themselves, which they cannot control and do not understand. They cannot save the modern world as it tries to crash through the sound barrier. Then comes the important point. If the world is to be saved, it will be saved by the spirit. Politicians or bankers or soldiers or businessmen or even authors and artists are not the essential people. We need saints. The most relevant figures are not those who understand the world, but those who can bring to the world something from outside itself and can act as the transmitters of grace. Mother Teresa, who sees Christ in the dying people on the streets of Calcutta, or the Dalai Lama, who bears his people's suffering with serene spiritual tranquility, represent the possibility of survival. The men of power and the students of power are like blind kittens, a metaphor Stalin once used of his Politburo compared to them. <coughs> then he concludes... It's a man, of course, a journalist throughout his life and career, a concluding article. If we are lucky, mankind, as it, as it is, has about 50 years left, left. Most of the graphs of human development, population, ecology, technology, nuclear proliferation, and the spread of disease are on an explosive curve. The line shoots off the graph somewhere in the middle of the next century. Of course, some of these explosions will not happen. Huma finally, humanity is unlikely to survive the 21st century with 20th century attitudes. If the atheists are right and there is nothing to reinforce human reason, then the necessary change of consciousness can hardly occur. If spiritual grace is real and is given to human beings, the possibility of a completely different and higher consciousness does at least exist. A world guided by saints and the spirit would not only be a better world, but also far, far safer into a much longer future.
what does all that mean? What's the relevance of that for us here in Mother India, here in one of the heartlands of deep spiritual life? What does that mean for a human being who is concerned not just for the picture and the storyline of self, but also for the sense of life and what it is to live in an enlightened way? So I mentioned there is this thrust and one of the expressions and manifestations of this thrust in life is the thrust for something more, for something greater. And sometimes we have noticed and experienced in the course of our life that when we achieve that something more, when we have so-called been successful in a particular endeavour, and we've derived the peace and the satisfaction from that which we pursued, which was greater, which we thought we couldn't do. And for some of you, that journey for something more is expressed in tangible terms of being here in India and all the apprehensions <coughs> and the concerns and worries for some of you about could I ever do it? Could I ever step out of the some certain security of my own country and society? and go into an unknown land. So that movement to something more is manifested, of course, in tangible ways here. But what one experiences with this movement is that there's a limited cycle to it. There is a point in which we find something more, whoever, whatever it is, only for that sensation, that satisfaction to dissolve itself and in its dissolution give rise to something else which attracts the attention. <coughs> and we can move in life from one finite something more to another finite something more to another and to another. And then we may be more successful in that movement. And all the ambition which uh, gives fuel to that movement, are we still dealing with the limited? So I say, rather than you and I in our reflections and considerations of life, rather than say, I must get rid of all ambition, I must negate ambition, let's, that ambition, make that movement to something which is fully satisfying, which is not finite, which is immeasurable and gives full satisfaction to a human being, which we call enlightenment which we call full spiritual realization, which we call emancipation, which we call the finding of God, the discovery of truth, the realization of emptiness, whatever way that we may speak of something profoundly beautiful. Let's say, if I am to have ambition, let that ambition be exclusively for that and that alone. Who is willing to say of their heart and mind and body and spirit, yes to that. And everything else must fit into that. Everything, every other interest in life, every other ambition and movement of life takes second place to discovering that fulfillment which a human being is satisfied morning, noon and night with.
in spiritual teachings, in the flow and the rhythm of uh, spiritual teachings. This seems to be the regular, <coughs> if not uh, frequent, um, interaction of something. It seems to, only seems to, there's no truth in it really, it's a wonderful phenomenon. And the interruption seems to be the arising and the occurrence of self. The world of I and my, of me and mine. And so there is this movement, this sense, this receptivity, one hopes of something. And what one keeps on getting is the movement of mind and body. And you're on your first day here and for another day and sorry, on the first day here you, for some of you who, for whom it's the first day of ever being in a situation like this before when you probably heard me read out Mr. William Reese's Mogg's comment on his life in which he says that from the years 60 to 70 seems like when I went from the age of 6 to 7 for those of you on the first day of a retreat may well understandably had the thought this guy William Reese Mogg has never done a retreat in his life because if he had, he would have just gone through the longest day of his life <laughs> and instead of writing from the, age, from the age of 60 to 70, he would have been writing from the beginning of one day of a retreat to the end of the one day of a retreat. Seems like going from the age of 20 to 40. <laughs> So the conception of time, the feeling of time, and, and is bound up with the feelings of self, the thoughts of self, the thoughts of my existence, and all the preoccupation and the conditioned ambition which goes with it. And we sit here, and we walk here, in the silence of things, and we say, you know, I don't want to be bothered with... with uh, Enlightenment. I just want to get my act together, please. Um, and just see if I can exert some kind of control over my life and just get my mind and body in enough order that it doesn't keep hassling me every day of my life. That, that would be enough for one lifetime. <laughs> and very understandably in the rhythm of the, the day, those thoughts do arise. And one also sees with the experiences of these uh, uh, way of being in the world that the world is a kind of uncanny place. It's a very strange situation to uh, find, our, find ourselves in. And we can't really say, well, I chose to take this birth and I chose to be here and I chose to do that. It's like we're living in a vast field and the circumstances of our life, inwardly and outwardly, generate events for us. And one of the things which I have noticed, and possibly you have done in your life too, is that events seem to conspire in life to somehow make us look. You know, we would rather sometimes like to pass through our life um, kind of um, um, sleepwalking through life and not being disturbed by events, but it seems no matter how we try to organize or control our life, something comes along and says otherwise. Says, no, no, not a hope. 
not a chance. There'll be frequent and regular interruptions to that which we don't want to be interrupted by. We want something to be in a particular way. We're ambitious for that. We want to control our circumstances. And life refuses to cooperate. And we still haven't understood this simple truth of life, that life isn't intended to fit in with what you and I want. It's not made to do that, thank goodness. Just recently, to give a, an illustration of this, just recently I was in, uh, giving teachings in Australia, in what is called the Rainbow Region of Northern New South Wales. <coughs> I've been there many times, I've yet to see a rainbow. And I was giving teachings in the forest there, in the forest um, meditation uh, centre there. And as we will do here during the days, we had in one of the afternoon periods, it lasts for an hour, an hour and a half, a period of inquiry. Some inquiry into the truths of life. And one person um, who lived in the city, lived in Brisbane, was speaking about this earlier, this issue of control, having control over circumstances, control over life, and something which I think does concern and sometimes bother people quite considerably. And in the course of the inquiry <coughs> in the hall there in the, in the uh, forest, I asked him, could you give an example, a specific situation? Because he said, inquiry just, I'm sorry, control was such a strong thing with him. And he gave a very simple uh, and uh, straightforward illustration of what he meant. He said it, it had reached such a point with him that even when he was getting into a car to travel as a passenger in the car, he would start feeling nervous. He would feel he was losing control over the situation and then and passing it over to the driver and that put him in a vulnerable situation. So sometimes when we look at ourselves and go deeper into the uh, inner, inner life, we observe and witness the elements of control and not far removed from the elements of control is the element of fear and this vulnerability. And so he and I in the hall there explored this together. The following day, in the late morning, we were sitting in the meditation hall. And then I was uh, sitting uh, at the front on, on the floor. And during part of that sitting, halfway through that sitting, a voice came out of the silence. This was about two-thirds of the way through the retreat. And it was this person's voice. And this person said, I'm frightened. You know, many things happen in meditation <laughs> rooms and again, one more, one less, doesn't make that so much difference. And he said, I'm, I'm frightened. And then he said, Does, is this poisonous? And I opened my eyes, he had the shawl around him, and on his lap, was a one-meter-long snake. <laughs> its head was straight up and pointing straight at his face. It's a true story. It's just two months ago. 
happened to a friend of mine, uh, Max, who uh, lived on um, Bodhi Farm, uh, one of our friends, communities, and uh, asked him, and he, he said, it, he looked at it, he said, it's a night tiger. And then he said, it's not poisonous, well, it just has a little venom. <laughs> so this person is sitting there. <laughs> His issues of control are <laughs> extremely present. He's got his arms under the shawl, he can't move. <laughs> and in that situation, he doesn't want to move his hands out from his shawl. And the snake is just there, swaying backwards and forwards. I was also concerned that some of the other people in the Dharma Hall would um, be observing other sensations as well as they were sitting rather close to this person. <laughs> and eventually the snake moved off and it just moved its way through the various bodies and out and, in, and out of the hall. And the thought that I had was, how did it find itself on his lap? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently what had happened was, it had been sleeping on the wooden beam above the hall, and it had got rather hot under the midday sun, had nowhere to go, and did a kind of dive-bombing act. <laughs> and it landed straight on this man's lap, the one person in the hall who had serious issues about control, I thought. <laughs> I thought this is, if ever there's anything cosmic in life, this is an example of this. So, occasionally, look, I <laughs> So it seems that sometimes there's issues in our life which are challenging to us, which we wish to avoid, we wish to steer away from. And it seems that life is a, a mystical conspiracy and that things can't be that neglected, can't be that ignored because the circumstances of life seem to, in different ways, spark things that forces us to look. Forces us to look. And it's not as though there is that much choice in those circumstances. The whole being can't move away from it and sometimes we recognize in life we have to face the snake. There's no other way to look and look again and look again and again to see the emptiness of the situation. In our days, in our days here together, the day of uh, the silences and the stillnesses uh, which take place, the day of the movement from uh, one event to the other, that much of it, and as uh, Rhys Mogg is pointing out there, is very much, of course, concerned with time. And we say too, in the language that he used, is what is it to live a saintly life? What is it to experience and participate in uh, a wakeful life, a conscious life? 
what's the most noble ambition of life? And we have the opportunity here, in the silence of things, in the reflections and the meditations of our, of our day, to really ask ourselves, am I willing to make steps from the known to the unknown, from the old to the new, from the past through to the present, which in some way, some profound and important way, pays the greatest respect for life. What will I give up for that? What will I openly and honestly and unashamedly do without in order to make something else which, uh, which is available, which is more, which is unchangeably great? And there's a, a faith in this. There's a, a trust, an implicit trust in this, that if I put my attention to this, if I focus to this with a capital T, that some way everything else of life will fall into place <coughs> because I've got the essential priority of life right, that is enlightenment, that is truth, that is a free human being, and made that the heart and soul of existence, everything else will fall into that wonderfully, easily, effortlessly. So for the welfare of ourselves, the welfare of men and women and children on this earth, for the welfare of the present, the welfare of the future, what our earth needs are human beings who are deeply realized. Human beings who are deeply realized. We don't need more politicians, we don't need more bankers, we don't need more architects, we don't need more of this and more of that. We need realized human beings whose realization will manifest itself in uh, precious ways. And we have this opportunity here, day in and day out. Nothing less than the best. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. So let us have a couple of uh, quiet minutes, silent minutes here together, shall we please?